Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to John chapter 4. As I mentioned already, a lot of people say that the Gospel of John has three sections. Chapter 1 is introduction, chapters 2 to 12 are the book of signs, and then chapters 13 to 21 are often called the book of glory. So we're a couple of chapters into the book of signs. The first three chapters of the book of signs all tend to deal with signs about newness and replacement. C.H. Dodd, for example, says the three chapters present the replacement of the old purifications, by the wine of the kingdom of God, the old temple by the new in the risen Lord, an exposition of new birth for new creation, a contrast between the water of Jacob's well and the living water from Christ, and the worship of Jerusalem and Gerizim with worship in spirit and truth, closed quote. So we're in the last chapter of this first section in the book of Signs. This chapter is about the new and better water and the new and better worship. Thanks be to God. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, if you've ever been to Sunday school or ever listened to a sermon in a church, you've probably heard a little bit about these Samaritans. The Samaritans were basically a sort of half-Jew. The story of their origins is told in 2 Kings chapter 17. In verse 24 of that chapter, we are told, And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, Seraphavim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. So Assyria liked to separate people from their land and from their tribal deities. They believed that there was a powerful connection between people, lands, and gods. So if you severed that and spread people around and detached them from their local gods, they would be easier to subjugate and control. So when they defeated the northern tribes, they took a bunch of those people and resettled them in other parts of their empire. Then uh, when they defeated other people, they brought some of those people and settled, the, settled them in northern Israel. The story goes on to say that these people who had now been settled in northern Israel, they started getting attacked by lions and wild animals. So the authorities sent some Jewish priests to teach them the basics of Yahweh worship so that they could live peaceably in the land. And this produced a sort of hybrid Jewish pagan religion. That is described in chapter 17, verse 33. The Bible says, So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods, after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. So that's where the Samaritans came from. And that's why Orthodox Jewish people didn't like them and tried to avoid them. They were viewed as religious apostates and half-breeds. Jews didn't like them very much. But they often did travel through Samaria because it was the shortest route from Galilee to Judea. So that's what Jesus did. Verse 5. 
So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. All right, let's pause there. John makes mention here of the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. That's a reference to Genesis 48. You remember that before Jacob died, he gathered his sons and he spoke to each one of them in turn. His words were a blessing, but more than that, they were also a type of prophecy. Verses 21 to 22 says, Then Israel, which of course you remember is the other name for Jacob, said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. So this piece of land near the town of Shechem became the final burying place of Joseph's bones. And a few hundred yards away from that, there lies the well that we are talking about here. Verse 7 says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now, John has already told us that it was about the sixth hour. That is to say, it was around noon. Jews reckoned time from sunup, which was about 6 a.m. So the sixth hour was noon, 12 noon by our reckoning. And that is significant because women generally went to draw water first thing in the morning. The fact that this woman came at noon suggests that she was a social outcast. But Jesus spoke to her anyway. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, again, you have to remember the theme of this entire section. The theme of this section is Jesus is better. 
He is bringing better graces. This goes all the way back to chapter 1, where John says, In Jesus we receive grace in place of grace. In Jesus we are receiving better gifts than were given in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God gave the land, God gave wells and water, and that was great. But Jesus is better. Jesus is offering something more than the shoulder of a mountain or a really efficient well or a nice cave to die in. Jesus is offering the water of eternal life. Jesus is offering entrance into the new heavens and the new earth. What Jesus is offering is infinitely better. And to state the obvious, what Jesus is offering is available to a much wider constituency. In the Old Testament, God worked with a family that became a nation, but the New Covenant community will reach wider. It will eventually embrace men and women, boys and girls from every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth, and we see that foreshadowed here in Jesus' engagement with this woman from Samaria. Now, before we move on, we should talk for just a minute about that phrase, worship in spirit and truth. What does that mean? Sometimes we throw that phrase around as if it means let's have some emotion, some hand raising, some really good singing, and then also a 45-minute exegetical sermon, and then we'll have worshipped in spirit and truth, but I don't think that's what's meant in the original context. D.A. Carson says helpfully here, there are not two separable characteristics of the worship that must be offered. It must be in spirit and truth, i.e. essentially God-centered, made possible by the gift of the Holy Spirit, and in personal knowledge of and conformity to God's word made flesh, the one who is God's truth, the faithful exposition and fulfillment of God and his saving purposes, closed quote. Meaning that God can only be truly worshipped through the person and in the spirit of Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying, it's not about this mountain or that mountain, it's about me. That's what Jesus is offering this woman, the chance to truly worship God through him. Verse 27 says, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has someone or has anyone brought him something to eat? Just incidentally here, note that the disciples were often guilty of taking Jesus too literally, meaning often Jesus was speaking in a spiritual sense and they heard him in a crassly literalistic sense. This is like when Jesus warned them about the yeast of the Pharisees and they thought he was rebuking them for not packing sandwiches. The the goal is not to take the words of Jesus as literalistic as possible. The goal is to understand what he's trying to say and then to wrestle faithfully with that. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. 
For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Jesus is saying something very important here. He's saying that we all build on the labors of other people when we're doing kingdom work. His disciples are about to harvest. That is to say, they're about to see people get saved. But they mustn't forget that they are building on the work of others. One thinks immediately of John the Baptist. His work set the table and prepared the way for the work that is now being done by the disciples. And that's an important lesson for us to remember. When you are blessed to lead someone to Christ, be careful to remember and to give thanks and honor to those who have labored before you. I have never led a person to Christ who didn't mention a praying grandmother or a a friendly Christian neighbor or a, a faithful youth pastor or Sunday school teacher somewhere in their distant past. You are always building on the labors of others. And you are always sowing seeds that another person will one day harvest by the grace of God. Only the Lord is master of the entire process. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. I think that's a marvelously helpful paragraph. The point of our personal testimony ought to be to get people interested in the saving word of God. You aren't trying to attract people to your story. You're trying to use your story to attract people to Jesus. And that's what happened here. At first, they were interested in what she said. But then they were interested in what he said. (laughs) And that's the idea. Verse 43. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. So just like the people of Samaria, this man believed the word that Jesus spoke. That is John telling us the nature of true faith. doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Samaritan or something else. True faith is believing the word of Jesus. The story continues. Verse 51. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he had begun to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. It is interesting to note the difference 
between Jesus' experience in Samaria and his experience in Galilee. In Samaria, a whole bunch of people, men and women, responded to his word and believed. In Galilee, their interest was related entirely to his signs, his miracles. They welcomed him because they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. They saw miracles and they demanded another. Jesus reluctantly does another sign because he had compassion on the Father and because the man believed. But the contrast is remarkable. John is preparing us for one of the major themes of his gospel, the surprising rejection of Jesus by the majority of the Jewish people. But not all. One man at least believed the word of Jesus, he and all his household. They saw and they understood that Jesus is infinitely better. Thanks be to God. And thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you would like to support this program, please consider leaving us a rating or a review on iTunes as it will help other people find and access these materials. If you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find our entire library of content over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes store or on Google Play. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, just go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right-hand corner. You can also contribute through the Into the Word app. We hope to connect with you again really soon right here for another episode of Into the Word. Into the Word.